So, Miles, this is the end of X-Factor. Yeah, yeah, this is it, Jay. Well, at least it follows Muppet Show rules. What, a celebrity guest star? Lots of monsters and pigs and frogs? No, you know, the, the Jim Henson thing where everything has to end with an explosion. Oh, uh, yeah, okay, okay. Or with somebody getting eaten. What?! It's time to turn the pages. It's time to see the sights. It's time to meet the mutants on Astagger tonight. It's time to put on gauntlets. It's time to dress up right. It's time to start Scoffle Dot tonight. Why do we still explain this? Why do we even look? It's like a kind of torture do to have to read this book. What I'm here to do, so it makes me really happy to introduce to you the end of X Factor Volume One. Yay! I'm Jay Edidin, and I'm Miles Stokes, and we are here to explain the X Men because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 424 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the end of X-Factor. We are covering the end of X-Factor Volume 1, a comic we have been talking about for many, many years. And which will end not with a whimper, but with a bang. Will it ever... So, okay, we have a lot to cover, so I kind of want to dive in. But we should definitely give anybody who hasn't been following our X-Factor coverage or who's just jumping into the show now for some reason uh, a little bit of background. So, how did we get to this immediately pre-ending status quo? Now, way, way, way back in the day, in the mid-1980s, X-Factor began as a very, very different comic. Originally, the team consisted of the original five X-Men, who disguised themselves as mutant hunters so they could secretly rescue mutants. And when the original five X-Men rejoined the, well, X-Men, the X-Factor name went to a new government-sponsored mutant superhero team, led by Cyclops' brother, Havoc. Eventually, and by then under the leadership of frequent ex-affiliate Forge, the team faked their deaths to get out from under the increasingly corrupt control of their government handlers— and went underground. But lately, very lately, we've clearly been transitioning to a new era for this comic, as the lineup and the concept have been almost entirely reset. Havoc spent a while as a bad guy, which we later found out was part of a secretly heroic plan. Now he's finally back in X-Factor's orbit, reclaiming leadership of the team. As is Shard, the holographic sister of longtime X-Man Bishop, both of whom worked as mutant cops for the Xavier Security Enforcers in the dark alternate future of Earth-1191, before traveling back in time, as so often happens in the Marvel Universe. And that's actually it, because everyone else quit the team in the aftermath of a brutal attack by Sabretooth. So we need new characters, right? Well, how about even more future cops to join up with Shard, but like, you know, edgy ones. So edgy one of them's got two X's in her name. That's right, these are three future cops named Fixixix, Archer and Greystone, 
They don't play by the book, but damn it, they get results. See, before Shard died in the future, and then went back in time, in that order, she met up with the XUE. That is Xavier's underground enforcers, and they were trying to go back in time to change history and prevent their dark future from ever taking place. Shard joined up with these renegade cops for about five minutes before realizing that that was a terrible plan and telling them to go kick rocks. But for very complicated and only tenuously explained reasons, they were able to use that brief association to travel back in time through her holographic consciousness in the aftermath of Sabretooth's attack on X-Factor. And for even more complicated reasons, each of the XUE members is inhabiting the body and assuming the memories of a person who died in a bus crash in the present day, and they can switch back and forth between that person's form and life and their own. Except for Fix, who doesn't have any of the memories of her host. Nope, just the body. So does this seem like a lot of new plot stuff to drop into a series right before it ends? Sure does. Sure does, because yeah, this series is indeed going to end. We are covering the last four issues of it, and as we'll get to, it ends, um, rather abruptly, before being relaunched shortly thereafter as an almost completely unrelated comic. That's right, this is the series that is going to eventually give somewhat tortuous birth to the somewhat torturous series, Mutant X. That's the one where Havoc's in an alternate universe, leading an alternate team of X-Men, including one of the versions of Storm with the best name ever. Bloodstorm. Yeah. It's also the series that has, the, that has canonically, the only well-adjusted version of Cyclops. Impressive. So, this was a surprise to a lot of readers. For many issues in letters columns, the editors had been building up the upcoming number 150. Big milestone issue, makes sense. We were told we were going to finally find out who assassinated presidential candidate Graydon Creed. We were told that Tom Rainey was going to take over as the new artist and was going to redesign all the characters. We were told we were going to have a new lineup for the team, which certainly that's building. The team members have really changed lately. And as it turned out... All of these things were absolute lies, because there would be no issue 150. Yeah, yeah, number 149 is the final issue of the series. They didn't even want that sales boost from a milestone issue, I guess. So, we were really wondering what the hell was going on here, and we found a Comic Book Legends Revealed column by Brian Cronin from way back in 2009 where he found a quote from editor Frank Peteress, who'd been working on X-Factor at the time. So basically, Bob Harris, who was Marvel's editor-in-chief at the time, wanted to boost sales on the book, and he figured, you know, a relaunch would do that. So Mackie and the book's editor and assistant editor brainstormed, and they came up with the idea that, you know, Havoc would get stuck in a parallel universe after his ostensible death in the main one, and pitched a bunch of titles. The one that stuck was Mutant X, because Harris wanted an X in the title. And yeah, so the writer, Howard Mackey, did his best to quickly build to this massive cliffhanger and status quo shift over the last few issues of the book. This was really a last-minute decision. And, I mean, to be fair, I guess we had some stuff that kind of could lead up to the way this book resolves. I guess. Maybe? So, yeah, despite the editors talking up all the big stuff that was going to happen in number 150, Peter S. confirmed there was never a script written for number 150. There was never even a plot outline written. They never got that far. By the time they would have, Mutant X was already the plan. Which brings us to the beginning of that somewhat frantic stumble toward the finish line. X-Factor number 146, Fairy Light. 
This issue is written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Lee Motor, inked by Scott Koblish, colored by Glennis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Lee Motor, I guess, is as regular an artist as we're going to get for this handful of issues, because previous regular artist Duncan Rouleau left to draw Alpha Flight. Motor does two of these issues, and the rest are um, additional fill-ins, who uh, I guess don't get two full issues, so Motor's the closest we get to a regular. I'm not really sure we can descri- describe anyone as a regular with, with four issues left in the series. Well, I mean, no, but uh, that said, Motor's kind of fun. His style is like more of a simplified, not quite as impressive Derek Robertson, kind of clean, kind of straightforward. It works. It's not super, super interesting, but it's totally functional and doesn't distract at all, which, you know, solid baseline. So what's our current lineup going into this? Well, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, we have... Havoc from the middle era of X-Factor, Shard from the recent one, and the three members of the XUE only very recently come to the present day and only very recently joined up. Those are Fix with Two Xs, Archer, and Greystone. So at this point, the overwhelming majority of the team is from Earth-1191. Yeah, yeah, four-fifths are either members of the XSE from that future or members of a group that split off the XSE. I mean, they were technically also XSE members. They just also had their, you know, underground thing. The point is, we have a lot of future cops on this team. We do. We really do. That's probably not great. The team is currently living in a random building in New Jersey that Forge gave them in addition to two middle fingers presented to Havoc. Uh, Forge wants nothing to do with this new incarnation of X-Factor. He's really mad about the whole Havoc pretending to be a terrorist and also doing terrorist things while he was trying to take down Dark Beast. So he's gone, and um, now there's a building they live in, which we don't really get to know very well because, you know, four issues left. Well, and also it's a pretty generic building. It's It's... Very much just kind of there. Which I don't think is a bad thing. I mean, part of what I think X-Factor might have gone toward is let's have these characters try to have an air of normalcy, like with the members of the XUE living as the bodies that they inhabited, but actually weird shit's going on. So having kind of a normal-looking base with weird stuff happening inside, I think would be fine. This is a book that, now that I think about it, has never really had a particularly strong sense of place. You know, I think the main time it did was when the original five X-Men were X-Factor and they were living on the sentient spaceship, Ship. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ship, Ship I almost, I think of as more of a character than a setting, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. But as for the team inhabiting this generic building, they are barely functional. Fixed with two X's is bored and lonely, like you mentioned, Jay. The corpse that she inhabited, she didn't get the memories from for reasons that probably eventually would have been explained. It's just Jane Doe, and consequently, Fix barely ever turns into that body, even though the XUE can all change forms. It seems strange to me that they're so fixated on the memories of the bodies they inhabit, and and Fix feels so bereft without them, considering she's still got all of her own memories. Yeah, there doesn't really seem to be a major downside here. I mean, it's not even like the XUE members are holographic entities the way that Shard is. As near as I can tell, they're basically real people. Yeah, they're just real people, some of whom have an extra and very inconvenient set of memories. Yeah, yeah. But Shard does not want to hang out with Fix. She kind of wants nothing to do with the XUE. I mean, after all, she quit the organization almost immediately, and they came back through her consciousness against her will. We are not friends. 
We were barely ever acquaintances. I was never part of your little band of traitors. I just made the mistake of considering joining you three. I got better, and then I got dead. But none of that has even happened yet. So Fix just goes to bed without an alter ego life to spend some time in. She doesn't know anybody or anywhere around here. But as she goes to bed, her mutant power comes out to play. She has these psychic sprites. They're like little glowy psychic fairies that can, I don't know, do psychic stuff that probably would have been better to find had the book continued. But what they do here is they fly around the city. In fact, they fly around multiple cities while she dreams and give we, the reader, a window into the different plot lines, which is actually kind of a fun framing device. First comes Archer and his terrible, terrible sense of boundaries. Aw, jeez. So Archer, in his XUE Future Cop form, uh, he reminds me a little bit of that dude from Hellboy who was just, like, ghostly gas inside a containment suit. Johan. Yeah, yeah, Johan, exactly. Uh, but the corpse he inhabited and now is leading the life of was this dude named Jude Black, who apparently was an international terrorist who was really abusive and shitty to his wife and son, and who also has this bizarre, inexplicable facial hair that's like if you had uh, a Van Dyke and then got rid of the chin beard part and got rid of the m- normal mustache part, so it was just the weird side part sticking out. It's so odd. You know... That's that's the facial hair of, of a, a ne'er-do-well if I ever saw it. I don't know, man. That's the facial hair of someone who's midway through shaving and just doing silly stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've totally done that a number of times. I've ended up with some real ridiculous shit. What, what's the oddest you've gotten that way? Uh, the oddest I've gotten, I, I th- I'd say it would have to be one of the asymmetrical things. So at one point I did, like, shave off one side of my beard completely. This was when I did Movember many, many years ago and shaved down to the skin for, like, the only time in my adult life. And so I just had a big, bushy beard sticking out on one side and absolutely nothing on the other side. And it was really freaking me out, so I got rid of the other side as quickly as I could. You, you didn't briefly consider leaving it that way? I left it long enough to... Did I even take a picture? No, I think I was too freaked out. That much asymmetry. I have trouble with asymmetry. Okay, man. Anyway, Archer is here in the form of Jude Black to make amends with Jude's family uh, to tell them, hey, it's all going to be different. And obviously, when their abusive husband slash dad shows up at the door when they thought he was dead, they are not really pleased and are super freaked out. So Archer's decision to connect with, with Jude Black's estranged family is terrible. Um, and it's partially, he claims, you know, out of out of wanting to tie up the loose ends of this guy whose body he's inhabiting, but it seems like it's also out of Archer's own desire to sort of recreate the family that he lost in the future. Yeah, we only get a brief mention of that, but I think that makes it really interesting. I mean, I feel bad for these folks, obviously, because damn it, Archer, just just go away. That's the best thing you could do. But the fact that he's doing what he tells himself is a good deed, but totally for the wrong reasons, for his own selfish reasons he doesn't even fully understand, I think that's interesting storytelling. Or or even get in touch and be like, look, I realize this is really weird, but Jude Black is dead, and I'm from the future, and I've possessed his body, and as a general thank you for that, I would like to make some kind of amends for the shit he did. I mean, I feel like there are so many better options than showing up, though. Like, I don't know, send them an edible arrangement or something. Are those real? I always kind of assumed they were a front for something. 
I don't know. Like, listeners, if you haven't seen these, I remember mainly seeing them in those catalogs of random shit that you used to be able to find on airplanes. Skymall! Skymall, yes, exactly. They also would have remote control sharks. Um, I saw one of those recently. It broke immediately. Um, anyway, though, the uh, edible arrangements, it was like a bouquet of flowers, but instead of flowers, it was pieces of fruit on skewers, and some, sometimes they were covered in chocolate, and I would only... I can only imagine that they would go bad so quickly that you would just end up with fruit flies instead of, like, a lovely gift. I've seen, like, storefronts for them, but they're always empty. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that's one of those ones where, you know, you pull on a table leg or something and a wall flips around and it's the mob or a speakeasy or something back there. X-Factor? It's just, it's X-Factor, yes, exactly. Anyway, point being, uh, Archer's making a bad decision, the family members of Jude Black are freaking out, and they freak out even more when shit gets worse. Right, because remember, Jude Black was an international terrorist. He's made a few enemies, including the Genosian mutates. Yeah, apparently one of the things he did was to blow up a training center for the Genosian mutates. Genosha, of course, is a South Africa metaphor, an apartheid metaphor, where the mutant underclass was severely abused until they eventually were able to, to free themselves. So, um, yeah, a couple Genosian mutates show up to get revenge, understandably. Archer transforms into his real form to fight, which surprises the hell out of his family, um... But it doesn't go great, and we'll get back to that shortly. So the next place the psychic sprites from Fix's Dreaming Mind go are where another member of the XUE is. That is Greystone. Greystone is a big dude who gets even bigger when his mutant powers manifest with a very traumatic past. He's um, a little bit less stable than the other XUE members, as we've seen in previous stories. And will shortly become significantly less so. Oh, very much. But his alter ego is the young Brian Young. I love that the young character's last name is Young. It just it just amuses me every single time. It's so dumb, but I love it. Brian is a runaway, and Greystone takes him back home to his abusive alcoholic parents. See, Greystone came back to get Brian's abused sister out, or at least keep her safe. Because when Brian ran away, he left his sister, who then, I assume, took the brunt of it. Uh, what Brian mainly does, which is to say what Greystone mainly does, is scare the crap out of the abusive parents by transforming into his big, beefy combat form. I think about it as his Krinos form. That'll be familiar if anyone's played Werewolf the Apocalypse. Uh, and it works. They are, they are sufficiently cowed. And he is actually planning to kill them, but uh, Brian's sister talks him out of it. Yeah, uh, maybe this is something that would also have been followed up on. We'll never know. So those are the other members of the XUE, but we still have a member of X-Factor, that being Havoc, who left in X-Factor's plane at the beginning of the issue. So Havoc headed off to meet up with Multiple Man at a sports bar, which appears to be not a bar where people watch sports on television, but a bar where people actually play sports. They just opened a place in Portland kind of recently called the People's Court that has, like, different sports courts for different kinds of sports indoors because it rains all the time here. And I'm not a sports person, but it sounds kind of cool. It's a good name. Right? Uh, Multiple Man, of course, was a longtime member of X-Factor during the governmental era and a friend of Havoc's. And when Havoc gets there, Multiple Man, Jamie Madrox, is playing basketball with himself because his power is he can make many of himself. He can make a bunch of duplicates. And none of those duplicates are at all happy to see Havoc. As, as Jamie explains, Sorry, Alex, but they still blame you for the death of our other. They'll get over it. I hope. 
it's kind of clever. Uh, Jamie is projecting his own emotions onto his dupes here, of course. But what he's referring to is that Multiple Man, or one duplicate of Multiple Man, died in X-Factor number 100, and it was kind of sort of Havoc's fault for complicated reasons. Everything's kind of sort of Havoc's fault for complicated reasons in X-Factor. Yeah. But it's not just the two of them, because Jamie invited somebody else to the meetup, another former member of X-Factor, albeit one who was much more recently on the team. And that is Polaris. Lorna Dane. Also, Alex's girlfriend? Ex-girlfriend? That hasn't really been resolved, but she's not pleased. I love the art here. She looks so pissed as she walks up to Alex. You've made a habit of bailing out on me with no more than a hastily scribbled word of explanation. And your penmanship isn't even that good. She continues. Why did you set this up, Alex? Did you want forgiveness? Fine, I forgive you. I accept that you had to find yourself, save the world at the same time, and that you, as always, were the only one who could possibly do it. Apology accepted. Now can we get on with our separate lives? And this would be a really good place for Havoc to take responsibility for his actions, to begin to try to make amends if Lorna's even interested in that. But instead, he's secretly interrupted by one of Fix's psychic sprites telling him about Archer being attacked. And so he just says, I gotta go, and he leaves. With no explanation. Exactly the kind of thing Polaris was mad at him about, and he just fucking does it again immediately after she mentions that. Okay, I know he gets sent for by the psychic sprites, and he goes to help save Archer's family, but how funny would it be if he just fucked off to Alaska at this point? That's what the Summerses do! When uh, when they're in an uncomfortable social situation, they just run away to Alaska! Gotta go to Alaska! I mean, I guess Alex went to Hawaii once. The you gotta go see a man about a moose. Right. So, in fact, Havoc and the other members of X-Factor do go, and they scare the Genosian attackers into leaving Archer and Jude Black's family alone. And Jude's wife and son are just thrilled that their husband-slash-dad isn't a jerk anymore, even though he also seems to be a completely different person from another timeline. But, you know, I guess in the Marvel Universe, you take what you can get sometimes. No, I think the part they're thrilled about is pretty explicitly that he seems to be an entirely different person. Yeah, no, that is that is fair. And Archer seems to be, I mean, he's not like an amazing person, but he's better than Jude Black. I mean, wouldn't anyone be? Right. So yeah, here we have, I think, an issue that works extremely well as a transition into this new era of X-Factor. You know, the one that doesn't happen. Which brings us to X-Factor number 147, Bashed. This issue is written by Joseph Harris, penciled by Mike Miller, inked by Nagia Lam, colored by Glennis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. That's right, it's written by Joseph Harris. That's right, the third-to-last issue of the series is a fill-in. Fuck's sake! Joseph Harris was the author who wrote the recent X-Force fill-in issue we covered, number 77. That was the one City of Lost Children with that beautiful painted cover that a listener pointed out was uh, inspired by Norman Rockwell art. In fact, there's a lot of stuff in that issue inspired by Norman Rockwell. I had no idea. And um, kind of like that issue, it's about uh, children who are having a hard time. The similarities end there. But uh, yeah, it's at least in continuity, it's at least a pretty okay issue, and it's about Shard. Sort of. Shard has traded in her future cop uniform for overalls and a shirt with rolled-up sleeves because she is taking a trip into the city. She's on the subway, on Alex's advice, trying to get to know the world she's trying to save. 
And this is interesting because she's been an X-Factor for a little while, but before Havoc showed up, she really never had any kind of guidance or mentorship in the present day, and she never really seemed to want any. And I have to wonder, is this because, as we've learned, Havoc is apparently a beloved public figure, historical figure in her future? Or is it just because she's especially adrift right now with the team having fallen apart? What do you think? I'm inclined to go for the latter just because Shard has never been nearly as starry-eyed about this era as Bishop. That's very true, yeah. Uh, Shard's last name, by the way, for anyone unfamiliar, is Bishop. So the characters are Bishop and Shard Bishop. Technically, Lucas Bishop and Shard Bishop, but nobody calls Lucas Bishop Lucas. Well, he's he's part of the the time-honored trend started by Danielle Moonstar of having a code name that's just your surname. What amuses me is that Shard calls him Bishop. She calls him her last name. Oh, I think that's fucking hilarious. I I can only hope that she sort of does it with little ironic air quotes every time and makes a face. It's very cute. My in-laws do that. Oh, well, excellent, excellent. I mean, not, not Bishop. What she finds, though, is a kid being chased through the train she's on and then through the station by a bunch of bullies yelling anti-mutant stuff. She ends up having to save the kid from getting hit by a train as he runs and then picks up his notebook that he dropped. And to give back the notebook, uh, she heads to the local high school where she is immediately mistaken for a delinquent student by the lurking nearby truant officer. Are truant officers actually a thing? I've never encountered one in real life, and I don't know anyone who has. Like, I've seen them in movies and stuff. I have no idea, but I'm surprised one would be hanging out right by a high school. I mean, that that seems like either extra easy or extra hard. Like, if, if you're skipping school, you're not going to go near school. Maybe the truant officer was looking for anybody who was attempting to leave the school, just sort of patrolling the barrier. I mean, to be fair, I did a lot of that in high school, like, going and then leaving partway through the day. Yeah, yeah, actually, I did a little bit, too. I guess I was always a little more uh, more lawful than you were, but, you know, some. Mostly with you, actually. Yeah, I was a bad influence. <laughs> you totally were. So, at school, in the guise of being a student, she meets up with a kid whose name is Kevin, because it's the 90s, and he bitterly reveals that, yes, he is a mutant. He is persecuted by these bullies for that fact. That's right. He's double-jointed. No, seriously, like, that's it. They they called him a mutant and made fun of him and chased him because he's double-jointed. Or because he has double-jointed thumbs. Like, that's it. Right, exactly, yeah. Uh, the implication here, and I think this does work, is that calling somebody you don't like a mutant, it was kind of like when we were in high school in the 90s, and if you didn't like someone, you would just call them gay. It was like the, the go-to insult, like whether right. or not it had any foundation in reality. Yeah, or if you could find any any hook to hang it on, anything to exaggerate into justifying it. Totally. So, Shard and Kevin, they actually kind of become friends, and he asks her to come back to school the next day. And so she does, at which point all the kids, the bullies and a bunch of others, throw rocks at her for being a freak. And, you know, she's like a hologram, so only some of them actually connect. Mm -hmm. but, but still, the ones that do connect hurt. And this is confusing, because the comic implies that she's obviously a mutant to them all, but, like, she just looks like a normal person. I guess she is a black woman with a long blonde rat tail, which is slightly unusual, and she has an M tattoo over her eye, which is slightly unusual, but I don't think she looks like a mutant. Well, they've seen her use her powers, or at least Kevin has. You know, that is a good point. Kevin did see her powers, and I guess he must have told them, in hopes of, I don't know, being more accepted himself. Uh, and in fact, the bullies call his bluff because they 
try to pressure him into bashing in her head with a rock. Shard was here to help someone. She was here trying to find hope in this past to which she's been sent. She's not feeling so great about this now. She's scared. The other one's stupid. He's screaming about how he's not afraid. I'll make him afraid. I'll make them all afraid. And she blows up a nearby tree with a blast, which is indeed something that makes them afraid. Afraid of me? Take the day, Havoc says. Walk around, get the lay of the land. This is the world you're trying to save. Better get used to it. And she heads home all fucked up about what happened and doesn't talk to Havoc or anybody about it. And back at the school, Kevin is all fucked up about what he almost did because he realizes he's still being made fun of. He betrayed an actual friend and almost got her killed in hopes of being accepted, and it didn't actually help anything. Womp womp. So, I don't know, this definitely seems to be, like, a message comic, but I was kind of having trouble wrapping my brain around what the message is. I mean, obviously, don't be a bigot, there's there's that, but uh, it seems like it's going for something more specific. It seems like it's going for something more specific, but got pretty effectively defanged on the way there. Maybe, yeah. What it really reminds me of is that classic New Mutants issue, number 45, where there's mm-hmm. the mutant kid, Larry Bodine, who's being bullied, and then he ends up becoming friends with the new mutants but then makes an anti-mutant joke and they're cold to him and then he kills himself that was actually an amazing issue and as can sometimes be the case i think this one does suffer a bit in comparison it's not a bad issue by any means but it's just not nearly that good yeah yeah agreed again though i think it does a good job of setting up what could be a really interesting story hook which is shard trying to reckon with the current status quo Yeah, and this run of X-Factor, to its credit, has been all about the present day sliding into the dark future that she came from, or a version of it. We've seen so many setups for Days of Future Past, for Earth-1191, the Bishop siblings' future, which is an offshoot of Days of Future Past. Like, it would fit, and we just never see where it goes. And that brings us to the last X-Factor Volume 1 story, the two-part story that begins with X-Factor number 148. Sorry is the hardest word. This is written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Lee Motor, inked by Scott Koblish, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. And Alex has not given up on making amends with Lorna. He has, in fact, asked her to meet him in a shack in the middle of the desert, hoping that this setting will evoke happier times. I mean, they did used to do archaeology in a little house in the desert before a space shark fell on them. Geology. Geology or geophysics. Like, it, it's, it, it goes from geophysics to geology to archaeology somehow over the course of all of this. The point is, they were in a shack and a shark fell on them. Yes. Alas, before Lorna can show up, Henry Peter fucking Gyrick arrives with a shit ton of mandroids to arrest Alex. Gyrick is, of course, the Walter Peck of the Marvel Universe. He's a government agent that is very anti-mutant, very anti-superhero, and just a real dick about it all the time. And he is specifically here to arrest Alex for the incident in Uncanny X-Men number 339, which we covered back way, way, way back in episode 369, in which Alex's Brotherhood attacked a plane full of innocent civilians and, coincidentally, a bunch of X-Men. And Gyrick and his mandroids slap havoc into power-blocking turbine manacles, and then suddenly... A bunch of wires, cables, and pipes burst through the ground and haul Alex off to both his and Gyrick's astonishment. 
yeah, this is Polaris rescuing him, and I love this. Like, she grabs him with all the metal stuff out of nowhere and with no warning. She pulls him through a hole underground and then drops him into a mine car and then magnetically pulls the mine car along a bunch of precarious tracks to where she is. It is so dramatic. Honestly, maybe the way Chuck Austin wrote her as being completely off her gourd was kind of appropriate given some of this stuff. No, this is just awesome. It's really fun. Like, Lorna, it's so clear she has no patience for Havoc's bullshit anymore. And honestly, good for you, girl. He's made some terrible decisions and has been extremely inconsiderate. Yeah, the amount of patience that the Marvel Universe as a whole has had for Alex's bullshit is remarkable, considering. And don't get me wrong, I have sympathy for the guy. He's got a terrible past, but come on, dude. And Alex does his best to explain himself, but they are interrupted by mandroids, and Lorna handles the situation and hauls Alex off still in the power-blocking manacles. It's great. Like, he tries to explain, like, no, 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 I know you keep talking about the notes I left, but but one of them wasn't even written by me. It was written by a supervillain. And she's like, dude, shut up. I don't care. Fuck you. That, that doesn't make it better, Alex. That actually kind of makes it worse. So they end up in the desert watching the sky and talking a little. Um, and to Alex, again, that brings up the better times he was trying to evoke with the shack. And Lorna, not so much. She is uninterested in either excuses or nostalgia at this point. But before they can get much further, mandroids show back up, and this time they bring a helicopter friend. So Lorna says, fine, I'll undo your restraints. And the two of them team up and manage to win the fight. And... There's a very cool visualization of Alex's powers here. Like, as as someone who is is extremely cranky about how Havoc's powers are portrayed on the page, I think this issue is a very good example of them done right. How would you describe this one? Mm. Aggressively mod. Ooh, very nice. Havoc manages to overheat the helicopter's engine with his powers. Lorna takes out the mandroids and, like, everything else with an EMP. And unfortunately, the EMP causes one of the mandroids to malfunction, overheating internally and spasming externally such that it grabs and is about to crush Henry Peter Gyrick, which I think, you know, might leave the Marvel Universe better off, but Havoc is pretty dedicated to proving himself not a villain, so he, he rescues both Gyrick and the pilot and gets them away before the mandroid explodes, and Henry Peter Gyrick responds to this by immediately attempting to arrest him again. He's consistent, you gotta give him that. Fortunately for Havoc and Polaris, they are saved by Val Cooper, former government liaison to X-Factor, now the Secretary of Mutant Affairs, who shows up with her very own helicopter and says, well, this is a mutant affairs situation, I have a letter from the president, and these two are coming with me, and so they do. And so they do. Uh, To Val's credit, she doesn't really have an agenda here, she seems... She seems to just let them go and do their own thing after this. But they do finally get a chance to talk. And Polaris finally gets a chance to tell Alex what she's figured out. You know, I didn't want to come here. I didn't really want to see you again or be put in the position of hating, loving, being angry about about any of it. And now that I realize it's over, I realize we are through. Whatever we had once is gone. All I ask, if it's even possible, is that we not be enemies. If that's what you want. Yes, Alex. That's what I want. And they're done. 
And I think this is a very well-earned and well-written breakup. And I really, really wish it had been allowed to stay. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, they get back together multiple times after this. They almost get married. Havoc leaves Polaris at the altar, and then she tries to kill everyone. It's a whole thing. Yeah, I wish that their story had been allowed to end right here, because not all relationships last. And that's okay. And And as breakups go, I think this fits both of them. And there are so few amiable exes in comics universes. Right. It, it would be nice to have a to have and 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 they ha, like they do well in that dynamic. Like they're interesting in that dynamic. Agreed. So that's the end of their relationship, and now here we are at the end of X Factor Volume One with the final issue. This is X-Factor 149, Times Change. Written by Howard Mackey, penciled by James Fry, inked by Scott Koblish, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. Greystone is having a rough time in the present in his kid body. He is not doing well. And this is confusing because in this issue in particular, and only this issue, he's colored as brian young with light skin and red hair but he's still drawn as like a fully grown muscular man like he was supposed to be in his normal graystone form but not the like powered up one it just makes everything really hard to follow and what surprises me is it's the same colorist as the last many issues it's glennis oliver like you'd think she would know the character really well so i don't know what's going on here but um it is one of the reasons this is an odd note to leave x factor on I wonder if it's supposed to be deliberately, like, ambiguous and mixed up, like he's sort of confusing and conflating forms. I mean, that would have been an interesting direction to go, but based on the way everybody's talking to each other, no, no, I think it's just a fuck-up. Now, Greystone really wants to go back to the future. This is theoretically impossible, but he thinks he knows a way. And he thinks it'll be different if he goes back, that the future will be fixed. Because the XUE, they did fulfill their major purpose in going back in time a couple issues ago. They prevented Havoc from accidentally releasing a human-targeting version of the Legacy Virus and starting this chain of events that would lead to the dark future. So he figures, everything's fixed, we're done, I can go back home, and, like, my mom's still gonna be alive, and everything will be great. Oh, kiddo, don't you read Tom's Wolf. Nice. Uh, Fix interrupts him and reminds him that no, they really can't go home and Greystone just loses his shit. How do you know? None of you know! We could go back to a perfect world! We'd be heroes! Alex, meanwhile, wakes up exploding. Yeah, like he just does a blast and blast the alarm clock. Um, It's sort of like a nocturnal plasma emission. And then, um does what he's been putting off for a while, which is to call Scott and apologize for almost killing him back in Uncanny X-Men 339, and it's just kind of inordinately charming. Oh, the Summers brothers. Yeah, Scott, it's your screw-up little brother calling to grovel and apologize. Again. You mean for launching a terrorist attack on a civilian airplane and throwing me several thousand feet to my death? Yeah. Did you mean it? No. Did you have a good reason? Yeah. I forgive you. Oh, oh man, these kids. I have a JPEG of, of this scene, this panel saved, with the file name Best Brother's Worst Sweater. <laughs> that is a really impressive sweater Scott's wearing, isn't it? It's real bad. I mean, it's in character. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this is this is definitely consistent with the Scott Summers dresses like a colorblind kindergartner. That he does. Also on the charming front is Jamie Madrox playing tag with himself. He's very happy to see Polaris shows up. Specifically that Polaris shows up wearing her X-Factor uniform. He just really wants everyone to get along. He really wants the old days to happen again. I love that he represents the readers who don't like the direction the book has had after it became sort of a Marvel Suicide Squad equivalent. Like, he talks about wanting to get Strong Guy, Wolfsbane, maybe even Quicksilver back. He's really evoking that early Peter David era that was so beloved. I just realized something, and it's incredibly specific, but also incredibly, I think, on point, which is that Madrox is the Iceman of this X-Factor. He very much is, yeah, in the same way that Iceman was always the one who was talking about the good old days, about how everything was perfect just back at the start before it all got too complicated and messed up. And who's also, you know, the Joker's kind of the heart of the team. Yeah. Madrox, it's odd that he's been brought into the book so irregularly and yet suddenly after being dead for so long, but this is the book in conversation with itself. This is the book talking about the era it's just been in, we know, it's, we know it would have gone into a new era, so maybe it was sort of hyping us up for something that was a little less damaged, a little less full of murderous supervillains. Or at least taking steps to reckon with those things. Yeah, just, that's the thing. We haven't been big fans of Howard Mackey's X-Factor run in general, but during this lead-up to the end, the end that wouldn't really go anywhere, the book that was being described, the book that was being built up— is a book I would have been super excited to read. Like, I love what the book seems to be building up to, even if it never does. Yeah, Mutant X is a disappointing follow-up to this, because it's not that book at all. At all. It's completely unrelated. So while we're gaining some team members back, we're also losing some. Back at HQ, Archer hands Alex a note for the rest of the team, and says, well, he's quitting to go try to make things right with Jude Black's wife and kid. It's a plot line I have really mixed feelings about. Oh, I know. Just just leave them alone, Archer. Just send them a bouquet of chocolate-covered pineapple chunks. Or a bouquet of, like, money or something. That could work, too. Would that have gone anywhere more interesting? We don't know. But at the moment, Polaris comes in to finally talk to Havoc to maybe join the team, sees him holding a note, and is just like, Dude, another one? Seriously? Ha ha. So, so the band has got back together, or the, the new band is assembled, and Alex gives them a rousing leader speech. So, what is X-Factor? What makes us any different than any of the other mutant teams? The X-Men, Generation X, X-Force, how do we approach things differently than them? In the past, we were the government's team, but that's over. We all claim to be striving to fulfill Charles Xavier's dream of human and mutant coexistence— but all we seem to do is battle other mutants and stick to the shadows. I want to change that. I want us to get proactive, take risks, and go public as heroes. Let's get out there and stop a few of the criminals usually reserved for the Avengers. Let's influence public opinion with our actions. Some humans are still going to hate us, but they do anyway. We can do it. Especially now that we're being rejoined by Polaris and Madrox. We'll make a difference whether the world accepts us or not. And whether he's going to go further from there, we never find out. Because Greystone at this point attacks Madrox, spouting vague accusations about future betrayal. And Fix tells Havoc 
actually, in their future, Madrax never betrayed anybody. Like, she doesn't know where this is coming from. Something is up with Greystone. He might have temporal insanity. Is, is that insanity based in temporal lobes? Uh, or it's actually painted with, with tempera paint. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's basically time travel madness. It reminds me of space madness from Ren and Stimpy. Uh, you know, it's as good a plot line as any, I suppose, and it certainly is consistent with his increasingly unhinged behavior. I mean, so severe PTSD. Eh, severe PTSD, temporal madness, it's a comic book, you know. I guess you don't really tend to travel in time unless you're, you've got a pretty fucked up time to be traveling from yeah yeah if your timeline's okay i'd imagine you just want to stay in it so they find graystone in the basement uh with his time travel device which is a big airplane basically and fix figures out what it is before graystone throws her out of his head it is a time travel thing um it's from a theoretical model from a class they took together at xsc academy Wait a minute, there was a class on building time travel devices that probably won't work? Like, I mean, a lecture I can see, but a whole class on it? Like, was this an elective? Was this an after-school club? Oh no, not just time travel devices. This one specific theoretical time travel device. I mean, I don't want to criticize anyone's curriculum, but I feel like maybe those credits could have been better earned on another, more relevant topic. I don't know, I feel like that's that's pretty standard post-grad stuff. Oh yeah, maybe it does get pretty specific. And, uh, yeah, so Greystone's gonna try to use this to fly back to his timeline, and Fix points out, um, no, no, that's actually just gonna, like, blow everything up, all of us included. And Alex chases Greystone as he's taking off and hops on the plane after him. This is not what I had in mind for the new X-Factor's first mission! And once they're airborne, Greystone comes to his senses. He realizes Fix is right, his plan is not going to work, and in fact, the plane is going to blow up. He offers Alex a chance out, and Alex basically says, I'm tired of jumping out of planes, guess I'll just die. And then the plane blows up. And, uh, yeah, uh, on the ground, Fix uh, looks at what happened and confirms that, um, yeah, Greystone and Havoc are dead. And all the characters are crying in, like, the last panel, and that's, that's it. That's the whole thing. That is the end of X-Factor Volume 1. What an abrupt ending with absolutely no denouement! I think it might have been better if someone had gotten eaten. Huh, <sighs> yeah. So I, I, I don't even know what to make of this. Like, it's not even that it's exactly a bad ending, just as it's a bizarre ending. Like, of all the ways you could have done this. I mean, reboot the comic with a character in an alternate universe? Sure, fine, why not? But just to have this suddenly happen, it's like the freaking end of Quantum Leap. So I feel like there's so much to say about this comic, about the ways it's changed over its different eras, and we're definitely going to do that. But probably not this episode. In fact, we're probably going to do something that we did after Inferno, which is just have sort of a denouement episode, since this and Excalibur are wrapping up on a similar schedule covering both of those. But as for what happens after this, so one thing that interested me is that the letters page of this last issue says that anyone who is subscribing to X-Factor would have their subscriptions transferred to X-Men. As opposed to, you know, Mutant X, the book that was directly replacing this one. That's doubly bizarre because I feel like a lot of them would already have been subscribing to X-Men. I know, right? 
Uh, so we will see more X-Factor. Uh, Marvel released a four-issue miniseries in 2004 under the title X-Factor, but it was completely unrelated to any of this. It was just to keep the trademark. The next real X-Factor, which is going to be by fan-favorite writer Peter David, would start in around 2006 after a successful Madrox miniseries and would go on for many, many, many issues. It's actually one of my favorite X-Runs. So what about the characters? Are they, are they just left, you know, exploded and grieving, respectively? Havoc, of course, will end up traveling to an alternate universe as he gets exploded. He'll be in the Mutant X series for over 30 issues and won't come back to Earth-616 until Chuck Austin's run of Uncanny X-Men years later. Wow. Polaris apparently ends up disbanding X-Factor off-panel. I mean, not that there was much of an X-Factor at this point. We'll see her later when she joins up with Magneto on Genosha. She'll also show up in Chuck Austin's Uncanny X-Men, and as we alluded to, she um is not okay in that run. Multiple men will be joining X-Corps and then X-Corporation before launching, as Miles mentioned, his own series. Uh, Shard will join up with Bishop in Bishop the Last X-Men. Archer and Fix are never seen or I think even mentioned again. Uh, I guess if they were still around somewhere on Earth-616, they would not have been depowered by the Scarlet Witch on M-Day, since we find out that alternate timeline mutants were not affected by the Scarlet Witch's spell. So, um... I guess they still have their powers while they're doing whatever and being entirely forgotten by every character and, I suspect, most readers. Uh, they're off with the clone X-Men in space. Oh, oh, I hope they are. That would be lovely. Um, Greystone is uh, still dead, as far as we know, which, honestly, maybe that's for uh, the best. And you, readers, have questions. Timbales asks on Tumblr... How do you think it would have played out if Dazzler had been the fifth member of the original X-Factor instead of Jean Grey as originally planned? Cancelled in 12 issues? Even more of a soap opera drama because of her dating history with Angel and Beast? I think it would have been much more of a Dazzler book than an X-Factor book um, with that particular lineup. I feel like it would have focused a lot more on the dual identity gag as it related to her career, and possibly have been somewhat weirder overall. I don't think it necessarily would have been bad, but I, I think it would have been very, very different. It certainly wouldn't have had the things that made that era of X-Factor really work. I mean, a big part of what I think worked was the original five X-Men trying to figure out how to come back together and be a team again to be heroes again after going through all of their history and shared trauma. And like all of that post-Phoenix, post-Resurrection, Scott and Jean drama, that was some of the most compelling stuff. And the other characters were so close to Scott and Jean that it sort of all was this big whirlwind of character development. It was great. Interestingly, though, uh, Chris Claremont had proposed an alternate fifth member, because he really didn't want Jean to come back. He proposed Jean's sister, Sarah Gray, be the fifth member of that team. Her being a mutant had been hinted at in some old stuff he wrote. I actually think maybe that would have worked better than having Dazzler if you were not going to have Jean, just because then everybody would have this, this shared tragedy, these shared connections in common. I think it would be a bizarre, bizarre dynamic, and you know, for different reasons, but... Oh, totally, yeah. I'm just saying, like, between the two, I think I personally would have rather uh, see a Sarah Gray X-Factor book than a Dazzler X-Factor book. But, you know, who knows? Some of the strangest concepts can make for awesome comics, so who knows what we would have gotten. Inferno would have been pretty different. <laughs> Very different. Disco Inferno, perhaps? Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, that's so good. Trish asks on Tumblr, with the roster changing so much over the many different runs that comprised X-Factor Volume 1, is there any character you wished would have stuck around longer on the team than they did? Uh, you know, a few, actually. 
Uh, many people forget that Caliban, the Morlock, was actually a member of X-Factor very briefly. And I liked his mix of idolization of X-Factor and also bitterness toward them for not preventing the mutant massacre. That was fascinating. I, I do like where his story ends up going, which is he joins up with Apocalypse, the big X-Factor villain, just so Apocalypse can give Caliban enough power to make sure he never gets hurt again. But I think that would have been more poignant if Caliban had been on the team with X-Factor more than briefly. So I don't think this is mutually exclusive with that storyline, but I think he would have been absolutely fascinating as a member of the government team. Oh, that's a really good point, because the government era, especially when Howard Mackey was writing it, was really leading up toward Days of Future Past, and Caliban was kind of the first hound, the first, like, mutant who hunted other mutants. So, yeah, that would have been a great thematic connection, too. Well, and I also think he just would have been a really, really good addition to that initial team of, of sort of weird misfits. Yeah, oh, I would have loved to have seen that. I just want more Caliban, I guess. Uh, also, Rusty Collins. Like, I know Rusty Collins was there from number one until all the kids left the team, and then he was, like, on the New Mutants for a while. But I wish they'd just done more with him. I wish he'd been more present. Like, he was the first person they rescued. He was older than a lot of the other kids. I would have really liked to have seen him have more of a relationship with the grown-ups, with the original five X-Men, as well as with the other teenagers. That could have been an interesting sort of bridge between those two, in some ways, separate groups of characters. Okay, okay, but um, while while we're talking about those teenagers, please also consider Boom Boom as perpetual grit in the gears. Oh, she was such a wonderful chaos element with those original five uh, X-Men versions of, uh, of X-Factor. Uh, also, like, random, I really liked where things were going with the whole tough guy who wants to belong thing, like, before the reveal that he was really just a kid who was being manipulated by, by Dark Beast. Um, like, it was fun that this kid created a persona that was essentially a parody of Lobo because, yes, random would be the grown-up character a teenager would think was cool, but I feel like it lost a lot of its poignancy at that point. Yeah, agreed. So we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Here at the end of all things, or at least the end of some things, let's hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. Oh, for the love of... Look, look, Neil Trishel, I'm not saying you're the only one who made mistakes. Clearly, C.J. Goss has played his part in this, uh, this situation as well. I'm, I'm just saying that it's ex exceptionally rare for one person to make such a long string of consistently terrible decisions with such, such singular dedication. Repeatedly. Seriously. Buddy, what the hell is wrong with you? And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to Max Carlton for cold open assistance. And very special thanks to Michal Richardson, Bilal Dardai, and Matt Hunter for extra vocals for X-Factor Tonight. Special, special thanks to our producer Matt Hunter for putting all that together. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite...